Hello, everyone. This is Jace from The Comic Source coming to you with an episode that I recorded at WonderCon. So I got a chance to sit down with the three different composers to talk about their work. Specifically, they were there at WonderCon to uh, sit on a panel called The uh, Music of the Antihero from Suicide Squad to Brainwave. And uh, as I said, I got a chance to sit down and talk to each of them individually about their work, about how music, uh, and I've always felt this way, how the music, the scores in video games and TV and movies are so much like the color in comics because they evoke mood and they set you up for things uh, to come. So I hope you enjoy the interviews. The composers I got to speak to were, first you're going to hear John Murphy, then you'll hear Stephanie Ekonomu, and then uh, a quick chat with Kevin Kiner, which I wish I'd had more time to talk with Kevin, but uh, he had to get to the panel. So anyway, I hope you enjoy it. It's really interesting. Please give it a listen, even if you, you're normally just here for the comics, because there is a, a lot of crossover, as I said, and uh, these composers were nice enough to share their time, and I think it's a pretty interesting interview. There's a lot that goes into creating music. It's not so different from creating comics. So, uh, again, hope you all enjoy the episode, and we'll talk to you next time. Hello, everybody. It's Jace from The Comic Source coming to you live from WonderCon 2022. I'm here with composer John Murphy, who has had quite the storied career. John, thanks for joining me. Pleasure. Thanks for having me. So for those that aren't familiar, John is a composer. He's worked in television and film. Just a huge amount of uh, body of work that's amazing. And and I want to uh, talk today about how music really sets the mood you know a lot of our listeners are huge comic fans and always compare the colors in comics to kind of the the soundtrack in movies so uh how did you get started let's let's real quickly just talk about your background did you always love music growing up like how did you discover this career um well it certainly wasn't intentional (laughs) Um, it was a really strange way here. I mean, in a nutshell, my dad was a country singer in Liverpool, which was strange in itself. Um, and there was always guitars lying around, so I think I was about 11 or 12, and I picked one of his guitars up and plugged it into an amp, and that was it. You know, the sound that came out was like, I knew I wanted to be into music. And then I was in a lot of um, sketchy bands in Liverpool. Um, when a lot of Liverpool bands were getting signed, so ended up recording with them and touring with them. And um, I ended up writing, starting to write songs with some of these bands and releasing records, and that was the beginning of writing music. And then I think I was about 25 or 26, and I got a chance to, to write some songs on a tiny little low-budget movie called Leon the Pig Farmer. Um, and so that was the first time I worked on a movie, and I, I loved the experience. It was a whole new thing for me. Um, and because the film was so low budget, they couldn't afford a composer. So they asked me, and my friend who was writing with me, you know, can you write a film score? So we, we said, yeah, you know, how hard can that be? <laughs> you know, it's just songs, isn't it, without singers? Awesome, we don't even have to deal with singers. So we just write. So we were just utterly clueless. We didn't have a clue, but we wrote this score, for want of a better word. Um, and the movie came out, this tiny movie came out, um, and it, it did really well in Venice, in Europe, and it won awards. We even won some awards for the music. And so by kind of failing upwards, a lot of people thought we were being very original and, and you know, um, we were 
you know, abandoning the idea of, a, of the traditional film score. And we weren't at all. We just didn't know what we were doing. We <laughs> absolutely didn't know what we were doing. So from that, the director and the producer and, and the writer went on to do their next film. And they asked us, did we want to do that too? And so out of nowhere, literally out of nowhere, um, David and I, who was my writing partner, um, were now film composers. And I was like 25 or 26. And it just felt to me... The best way I can describe it is that when you get to, when you're a songwriter and you suddenly get to write on a real film, you know, and you're writing a score, it's like having, if you're a songwriter, you've got five crayons, you know, guitar, drums, bass, singer, whatever, and then suddenly you've got a chance to write a score, it's like you've suddenly got a big pack of 300 crayola crayons, you know, where you can have a bit of harp, you can have a bit of this, you can have a bit of... And it blew my mind. The first time I got to write what became an orchestral score just blew me away. It was like, this is what I want to do. So, you know, I can't say I did the Juilliard thing and the Berkeley thing. I, I, I was a guitarist in a punk band. That's how I started. And then it ended up by somehow luck, whatever, and I ended up here. So. Well, I see uh, oftentimes you're working with the same kind of filmmakers over and over, you know, yeah. from, from Lee and the Pig Farmer to Lock, Stock and Two Smoking Barrels, Snatch with Guy Ritchie, yeah. you know, obviously, you know, that British sensibility. Um, do you find when you, when you click with the director, when you click with the filmmaker, that it, it just becomes like a, a shorthand to kind of set that mood with the, the background score? It's just so much easier because when you first it's such a unique relationship between a composer and a director because it you know it the music might be the only thing that the director doesn't have a real hands-on understanding of mm -hmm. you know I mean they will you know any director will understand some cinematography they'll understand part of the editing process they'll understand part of the story structure but when it comes to music you know how do you talk about music you can't if, yeah, if you're not a musician. Yeah, you just can't talk about it. I mean, it's hard enough for me to talk about music because <laughs> what you, you know, you're talking colours, you know. So because of that, the relationship between a composer and a director is very unique. It's almost like this leap of faith on his part and your part where you've got to trust each other and work in some kind of shorthand. So the first the, the you know the first month of a new director is always really edgy you know you, you're both trying to see what you can get away with but you know as soon as you get to that shorthand where the director is comfortable enough to say to you john that's crap but but i like this one so put right. that and you not get upset about it when you get to that point it's like oh finally right right now and then everything goes quick so the next time around it's just way easier, you know. You so they know, know what, what they want. like and they know what yeah. they don't like, but they don't know how to tell you. They don't know how to tell you, yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, they, they go, I want it to feel a bit, you know, um, purple here, <laughs> and I want it to be a bit, you know, that in that, you know, the end of like that Radiohead track on Pop. You know, it's just, but you've got to be, but part of the job is you've got to understand where they're coming from to, mm -hmm. to be able to do your job. So you've got to click into their sensibility as fast as you can you know that's half the battle but once you lock into their record collection you know and you know what they're talking about and, and you know that's what made it really easy with James is that we were both into punk you know we could you know we can talk for half an hour about Hanoi Rocks you know and yeah. how you know I mean it's like yeah. once you get to that 
hallowed ground of being comfortable and you kind of got an idea of what both of your vinyl collection looks like, it's so much easier. So, find that you know, once you do two films with someone, it's yeah. like, you, know. you find that common ground. Yeah. Well, that, so that's interesting because uh, you did, uh, you worked with uh, Michael Mann on Miami Vice. Yeah. And, and that property is so intrinsic to the 80s. So did that give you a, kind of a head start when you um, needed to do that, the score for that film? No, because, you know, even though Michael was, I think Michael might have been the originator for the TV show. Uh, I'm pretty sure he was. By the time he'd come to, to do the movie, thanks, you know, uh, to do the movie, he had very clear ideas about the tone and the colours and, and the way he wanted this to feel. And it was different to the TV show. So, you know, even though I remembered watching the TV show, you were still starting in from England, scratch. It was, it was kind of starting from scratch, yeah. You know? And in a way, it's better that way because you don't have to, you know, you don't have to waste time trying to understand what a, an American interpretation of what the original show was from the angle of a British guy, you know? Right. Starting from the beginning was easier. So, yeah. Now, was that different? I mean, you know, not that you haven't worked with some other brilliant filmmakers, but Michael Mann, he, he's kind of known for even the, the settings are a character. You know, it's yeah. so much about mood with him, even more so than the story or the actors. So was it, was it more challenging for you to score that film? Was it, did it make it easier? It actually, once we got working, it made it easier because, you know, I mean, I, I understood the, the, you know, Michael is 360 and, and he, there's not a detail in his movies that he doesn't know about well and he hasn't thought about and he hasn't made a decision on. So, you know, I knew that going in, but what surprised me with Michael was how supportive he was with all of these ideas and how clear he was and, and you know, we'd, we'd talk for, you know, I had a lot of conversations with Michael about the backstory and why this character would feel this and, and why. So he was, you know, he made it easier. There was never any second guessing of what does he mean. Um, you know, and it, was it was tough for me. I mean, I think I'd just done 28 Days Later and, and that was, you know, not a huge movie. But, you know, I was still finding my way, so to suddenly be working with, with this legendary, iconic director was... You know, I was nervous, to be honest with you. But he was very... You know, he knows what he's talking about. You know, he really does. So he was very clear about everything, and he would explain everything. And he's such a smart dude. You know, he's a smart guy. So it was actually easier, because there wasn't anything where I went away from a meeting with him where I was unsure. He made sure that I knew. Right. Common ground was easier to yeah, find. Yeah, 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 for sure. Uh, well, my last question, uh, John, is you're here, your, your panel here at WonderCon this year specifically is about composing music for anti-heroes. Now, yeah. you, did, you did Kick-Ass, Mark Millar property. Yeah. Most recently, you did Suicide Squad with James yeah. Gunn. You can't get more anti-hero than that. <laughs> so is there an extra challenge with, okay, here's the protagonist, doesn't necessarily mean they're on the side of angels. Exactly. So yeah. is it more challenging to kind of compose music for that sort of a character? No, it's actually easy for me because for one, they're the characters that I'm drawn to anyway. Okay, personally. Yeah, and you know, to be honest, I mean, the idea of the hero, it's almost, it's been done so much, you know, mm. your typical all noble black and white hero. It's hard to write for because where's the complexity or where's something used? But when you get somebody who's an anti-hero or in Suicide Squad you've got anti-heroes you've got anti-villains and then you've got the you know the subtext of who's the real villain and then you've got 
the big fight at the end and yet Storo isn't really the villain any you know so mm-hmm. it's all that's wonderful for a composer because you have all these grey areas that you can work with so it's much easier for me to work with those characters because I understand those characters it's almost like your palette is yeah, bigger it's exactly what it is and the well is deeper because you, you try to understand well why was Bloodsport that way and why so it's for me it's, it's much easier because I get those characters anyway but you've got more colours to play with you know I much prefer more the crayons idea. in the box yeah. to go back to more what crayons you in, exactly you've got more emotional crayons in the box to work with so you know, the only problem any composer ever has is inspiration. And when you've got those characters, then you don't have to worry about inspiration. So I'll always lean, you know, I'll always lean that way. Fantastic. Yeah. Well, thanks for your time, John. It was great talking. Thank you. Thank you. Natural. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of The Comic Source. I'm your host, Jace. I'm here with composer Stephanie Ikanamu, who uh, is here at WonderCon 2022 to talk about the music of anti-heroes. That's correct. And you're looking at your body of work. It's very diversified, but it, there are plenty of anti-hero themes there that Certainly. I want to talk about and, and how you draw where it comes from, the well of inspiration to, to talk about those heroes that live in the gray area. But, but real quickly, for those that aren't familiar with you, give us a real quick, how did you come to the world of composing? It's so interesting. So many of you start off as musicians and then move on to almost this more diverse, creative palette of providing the background scores for movies and TV shows and animation, which is so much about evoking emotion. Mm -hmm. It's so fascinating to me. Yeah, yeah. everyone certainly has their own path of how they get to this wonderful place. Uh, For me, I grew up playing violin and piano, um, and I was lucky enough to go to a school that had a composition program and music theory program. So I got really involved in just writing these little ditties and songs and things like that when I was in my teenage years, and I decided to go to music conservatory to pursue concert music full-time, music for the stage. Um, and during my time there, I um, scored some short films, and I just loved the collaborative nature of it. I feel like for the most part in concert music, you're sort of stuck inside a practice room, and it can be very, very isolating and just writing self-important <laughs> music. So it's uh, nice to work with someone who's going to challenge you and push you out of your comfort zone. So I really fell in love with that process. And then I came out here to L.A., and I started working with a composer named Harry Gregson-Williams, who's very well known for film and video games and things like that. And that's sort of where I cut my teeth and wrote all different kinds of music stylistically. I was writing for, you know, like animation or for thrillers or for big action shark movies or for, you know, like smaller indie films. So, um, you know, that diversity is what gets me really, really excited about working in this field because you're never bored and you're constantly challenged. Yeah, that's interesting. Keep it fresh. So there's always new stuff. Now, one of the uh, projects you work on, Step Up High Water, which is kind of a spin-off of the Step Up films. And what's so interesting to me about that is it's talking about a a, a creative arts high school. And it's talking about dancing, where music is such an integral part. You know, when you're working on something else, you know, a film or, or, you know, like... uh, or, or a TV show like Jupiter's Legacy or a, a video game like Assassin's Creed, you know, the music is there as a way to evoke emotion and in the background, but for something like Step Up, 
I mean, these are kids who know music. Sure. They're sure. dancing. They're in band. They're whatever. Is it is it a is it more challenging to do something like yeah, that? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, Step Up um, relies very heavily, as you said, on kind of the needle drops, the music that they're dancing to, and just sort of those really great artistic moments um, with the, those artists in the show. The score itself kind of plays a couple different roles. It does play the underscore role, so that we're sort of shaping these stories and the narrative. We're evoking that emotion, as you said, but sometimes it like it needs to have that grit. It needs to have something different. So that's where you know the Atlanta trap sort of side of it comes in. And um, season three of Step Up High Water is coming uh, hopefully at some point soon in the next couple months. Um, and I'm working with a co-composer, Emily Sankofa, who is from Atlanta, and she writes amazing trap music. So like having those kinds of collaborative ideas with what I brought to the table for Step Up for the previous season um, has provided to be like a really interesting thing. And it's sort of mixing the needle drops and the songs that they're dancing to with the scores. Like there's a little bit of that sort of energy and that grid in the score now too. Now is it more collaborative with, with the actors that have to play those creative? I mean, do, do any of them ever come to you and be like, I'm supposed to be this person that knows music on the show, but really I'm just an actor. I don't know music. Is there any kind of that interaction? Yeah, for us there isn't that um, because we're kind of involved in post-production, but there are a lot of original songs for Step Up High Water and a producer named Matt Head writes those in Atlanta with the cast and just like oh, is cool. sort of working hands-on with the mm -hmm. talent unfortunately we don't get that side of it but oh, <laughs> it's so really fun. it would it would be super fun but um, Matt is so like you know the guy for that mm -hmm. stuff and everything that they come up with it's, it's so impressive and it totally makes the season well I mentioned earlier you also working on a, a few different uh, video games Assassin's Creed the Valhalla downloaded content Siege of Paris mm -hmm. I, I so I have a couple of questions about this first sure. of all it's Siege of Paris so yes. Paris just evokes automatically everybody knows Paris so mm -hmm. how do you something so well known you want to evoke that feeling but yeah. you want to keep it fresh so sure. where, how, what's your approach where do you come yeah. at it from that's the thing I absolutely love about writing music for Assassin's Creed is that you have these historical narratives all of their games kind of have that except the one that just came out, Dawn of Ragnarok, which I also scored, which is more the mythological side of it. Um, but that's what's fun. It's like delving into what that history means musically and then breaking the rules. You know, that's what Assassin's Creed is. It's about paying homage to what that music sounded like, but making it hyper-modern and risky and just like hard-hitting. Um, and that was really fun on the Siege of Paris because I got to, you know, find out what did Paris sound like in the year 880-something, you know? And I found very little because there's very little, you know, surviving history of what that music sounded like back then. It was a lot of, you know, um, like sacred music, choral music, or um, just kind of a lot of traditional folk hidden boxes with strings on them and things like that, just like very rustic. So I leaned more into that side of it. Um, I have a friend named Ari Mason who plays viola da gamba, which is more of a Renaissance instrument, mm -hmm. a little bit later than the time period of the Siege of Paris, but we brought those colors in. There's a lot of like plucked gamba, a lot of like very rustic bowed stuff that just comes across as being a little bit primitive, but sort of high end. So it feels like Paris, like it feels like the society and like the environment. And exactly. Um, so it kind of lived in all of these little gray spaces, which is what was really fun about that score. So you used an interesting word when you answered it, colors. Mm -hmm. Right, we're talking about music. So when it's something like a video game, uh, I imagine, you know, especially an action video game like yeah. Assassin's Creed, 
these color colors, these sounds need to be really vibrant. So do you always enter it from a different headspace as opposed to doing a film or a TV show? I feel like my approach is generally the same, but um, the way you execute it is slightly different in video games. I feel like I'm a very textural, color-driven composer. Like I, pay, I like to pay attention to kind of the intricacies of sounds and how different things are intertwining and how I can evolve that and what the music can help tell within that, those parameters. Um, video game music is very different than film and TV music in the sense that I feel like it's not I feel like I know the players are living in that for much longer periods of time so you have a chance there's an opportunity there for the music to like really tell the story and stick with someone and make you feel like the player you're embodying and so that doesn't necessarily change my approach but I do have an awareness of it and I mm. want to make sure that the music has the energy it needs to at that point of the story or it has the breath and the capacity to sort of get more anxious or make the player feel like this is a respite this is a time to relax this is a safe space um, it's just a different thing. You have to sort of think about the layers a lot more and how adding a layer of intensity is going to affect the player. And it's across a much longer period of time. So the approach is different, but I think the artistic way in which I write the music is pretty much the same as I would a film or a TV show. Is there any thoughts when you're doing video games as they, it's a hard part of the game, they're going to be doing it over and over and over, as opposed to movie or TV, maybe they see it one time. Sure. Yeah, it's <laughs> that's the thing you think about when you're sitting down. You're just like, I don't want to make this because that's the thing about video game music too is that it has to loop, right? It has to be functional. Mm -hmm. You know, you might have a three or four minute piece of music that you have to write for a boss fight, but the player might be playing that for forty five minutes right. an hour. You know, they might be playing for ten minutes, but you have to understand the implications of the music. Like, you don't want it to just feel so repetitive. You want it to be able to travel and evolve, but it can't, you know, build to the end because then if you loop back, it's going to feel less intense right. suddenly. You know, so you have to be very clever about the way you design the music. And I think video game music is very much about design coupled with the creativity. Um, so, so yeah, it's an interesting process, and you just have to kind of have the awareness as you're writing or before you're writing to be able to make those choices in the moment. And then you know they're at work later and they're, they have your music playing in their head. Yeah, the I certainly fight. hope I haven't caused any sort of you know, <laughs> <laughs> issues. It's just people are dreaming the music, but in a bad way. Well, uh, specifically your panel here at WonderCon 2022 is about anti-heroes. Mm -hmm. So these, these are characters that, that live in, in sort of this gray area. And certainly we're talking about Mark uh, Miller's property, the Netflix show, mm -hmm. Jupiter's Legacy. These, these are not necessarily your you know traditional type of superheroes. So when it comes to writing something that lives in that gray area, you're yeah. not going yeah. super dark with the music. Yeah. You're not going, this isn't a hero moment. Mm -hmm. Where's the challenge there to, to get across that emotion you want, that complexity of the character? Yeah, I mean, Jupiter's Legacy is full of many, many characters with different degrees of complexity and, um, you know, the Union of Justice, which is um, these six heroes, were set up to believe, like, they're the untouchables, they're the keepers of society who protect us, when in reality, you know, we, we see their origin story and then we're flashing forward to present day and we see that they're very broken down and there's a lot of conflict and they have a lot of challenging relationships, especially with their children. Um, and that's where I got to kind of play with sort of, you know, undermining what that trope is. So, like, setting up some of these characters to have that really heroic sound, but then, you know, playing a theme on French Horn for the Utopian, or Sheldon's character. And then, when we see him older and really struggling with his relationships, it's maybe on a piano, or it's on, like, a very distant horn with reverb, and just playing with what we think hero music is. 
And then it's full of, you know, villains and who we don't know were villains and a lot of really cool surprises like that. But there's lots of underdog anti-heroes like Raikou's character and Chloe's character. And for that, musically, I approached by just doing something completely different. They had a totally different sound than anybody else. Um, Chloe isn't part of the union. She doesn't use her powers like in the same way that her parents do. Uh, She's a model. She just went, you know, off the beaten path. So she has kind of a punk rock sort of like, you know, industrial sort of sound that follows her around. Um, But in her intimate moments, it's the same theme. Maybe it's not on blaring guitars, but it's on, you know, something like acoustic guitar or electric bass, just something a little bit more subtle. Um, So sort of choosing the moments to be bold with our anti-heroes, but also understanding that their complexity is going to mean the music has to sort of evolve with them like a kaleidoscope. That was always really important to me because they're not just going to have this one badass action sequence. Like, we're going to follow them through this thing. Um, So musically, there's an opportunity there to, to, you know, make it more interesting. So when you're composing the music for these specific characters, I, I imagine the way you work and, and in our conversation here, you're thinking, okay, you know, this character is in my mind this color and this character in my mind is this color. But then as they evolve as characters, maybe the, the hue of that, maybe mm-hmm. that's a darker shade of pink or a darker Absolutely. shade of blue. Yeah, yeah, you definitely, I, I mean, I was lucky with Jupiter's Legacy because I could see the entire series all eight episodes before I even started, which can be quite rare in television. Mm-hmm. But I could kind of plan these arcs and I could plan the color changes and the shifts and those emotional beats because I knew where they were heading. So I knew that I could set Chloe up to be this like big badass character, but she's dangerous and she has all of these things. But I know that she's going to get to her rock bottom. And how do I bring those colors into those moments to make the audience feel like we're there with her? Um, so, so yeah, that was fun. And then, you know, um, spoiler alert. I mean, it's not a spoiler because it's been out a year. But, um, you know, she overdoses. So it's like a very difficult time for her and I was playing with a lot of you know reversed heavily affected electronic sounds and some like distorted sounds coming from that sort of punk rock industrial rock sort of feeling but in a very very different application um, so yeah it's always nice when as a composer you can help those those emotional moments now you've worked on so many varied uh, projects and we've talked about a, a few of them here do you have a, a preference do you like working on you know here you know oh this is the traditional hero type do you like doing villain stuff? Do you like the anti-hero? Do you like the, the step up where it's more on the creative side? Any particular preference personally? None at all. I really, I like doing different things that are going to push me. Um, and I'm doing I'm doing a comedy film right now. And that's something I've never quite delved in, into that area before. Um, so that's been its own challenge, but I'm really excited to be doing that because it's flexing a muscle I didn't even know I had and it's building it and I think I'm getting stronger. Um, but I like, I like being able to turn around and go from doing something like Trap with Step Up to something big and symphonic and orchestral like Jupiter's Legacy or the rock and the punk in Jupiter's Legacy. It makes it fun and I think for any artist it's really crucial to explore that unknown terrain because you're going to take that experience and those artistic choices you made and put it towards something else and I think those are the opportunities that afford us the chance to find out what our voice is, what our individuality is. Yeah, another tool in the toolbox, so yeah, to speak. Yeah, precisely. Yeah. Yeah, well, it's been great talking to you, Stephanie. Really appreciate the time. If there's anybody that wants to reach out and ask questions or follow your work uh, online, do you have a, a social media at all? I have the medias. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, my website is stephanieikonomu.com. Uh, my Instagram is steph, at stephikonomu. Same with my Twitter. Um, and those are the places I exist in the, in the cloud area. <laughs> Fantastic. And I'll put links in the show notes, everybody, so you can go and uh, check out Stephanie's work. So appreciate the time, Stephanie. Have a great show. Thank you, Jace. Thank you. 
Hello everybody, this is Jace from The Comic Source coming to you live once again from WonderCon 2022. I'm here with composer Kevin Kiner. We're going to talk a little bit about anti-heroes. Yeah. So Kevin, thanks for joining me. Before we get into that, because you, you've done one of the most uh, popular anti-heroes in recent memory with Peacemaker, yeah. but I do real quickly want to touch on the fact that you've worked on so many Star Wars properties, uh -huh. which is this iconic kind of nerd epic kind of thing so when you approach it from the uh, uh, you know the perspective of a composer how do you keep it original keep it fresh but make sure it stays big and epic working on the Star Wars yeah property? that's wow that's the million dollar question dude <laughs> I, I, I mean you actually you could teach a film scoring class with that question for about 12 weeks I, I mean you know I was just talking to John Murphy about this and every time we approach a project we're like what is going to be the sound of this thing? What is the identity of it and stuff like that? Uh, so you mean like kind of the underlying thread that's going to follow through? Yeah, is it going to be orchestral? Is it going to be, you know, guitars? Is it going to be synths? Is it going to be distorted? Is it going to be uh, more feelings or something like that, you know? So uh, James Gunn actually did a lot of the groundwork when he chose uh, late 80s, early 90s hair metal. Mm. And, and so I, I'm really not educated about those bands and didn't know much about them. So I did a lot of research, and um, for instance, you know, I was just talking again with John Murphy about um, there's a scene with Peacemaker out in front of his trailer. It's one of the first scenes in episode one, and it, he's going home, and he's all alone, and it's a very lonely, kind of heartfelt, lonely guy, and, you know, that might be approached with a piano um, you know, in other films or something mm -hmm. like that, and we chose to do it with an electric guitar. Uh, and I went through about like seven or eight different guitars playing the exact same thing till I found the guitar that, that kind of spoke the emotion to me. So that's part of the process, you know, and I mean, that's kind of how I got into that, um, at least into that scene. Then there's the other parts that are huge, like the gorilla fight or um, the very the, the very big ending. We got a full orchestra for the en ending and, and stuff. Um, we started combining like the heavy metal guitars and the rock drums along with the French horns and the trombones and stuff. And it, it kind of becomes a hybrid and, and in a way... I, I don't, I don't want to say it writes itself, but just as a writer, as the words will flow on the page, kind of when you have these elements like the guitars, the trombones, the French horns, it's like, okay, I'll use the French horns for that. Oh, maybe the guitar could do a harmony with that. And it just kind of takes a life of its own in a way, you know. Um, and, uh, yeah, t to me, composing is like a big jam. I, you know, I always, I'm a lead guitar player. I always wanted to do solos, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and writing melodies and writing, you know, even horn parts or violin parts is all just kind of a kind of an improvisation for me. And then and then listening to them interplay with each other, you know, becomes whatever my sound is, you know. And I don't even know what that is. <laughs> well, when you, when you're doing something like Peacemaker, where it's an anti-hero, and you're trying to find that sound, is it just starting from a different place to get there, as opposed to writing something super heroic or, or really um, dark and villainous? Well, actually, I mean, we leaned into first these chord changes that are very common in in that '80s '90s mm. hair metal. 
and then I just one morning I walked by the piano and I heard this melody and I'm like oh that's the peacemaker melody you know and it was just one of those really cool moments they don't happen all the time excuse me um, but that's how that happened so you're always constantly looking for inspiration as a composer you never know where it's gonna come from no, it's just like walking past the piano in the morning. I don't know why I heard that. You know, I, I saw an interview with Henry Mancini once, and he's playing Moon River. And you can see this look in his eye, like, because he goes, look how simple the beginning is. It's all on the white keys, you know. Mm -hmm. And um, I know what he was thinking, because he has this look in his eyes, like, why can't I do that again? Because mm -hmm. they, they don't come every day, <laughs> you know. So that's kind so, of the deal. So, it, when they do come, it's just important to, to grab onto it. Yeah. And then you get... Up. And to recognize it for what it is, you know, and this is my son, Dean, he co-writes with me, and I definitely bounce stuff off of both of my sons who work with me, you know, mm -hmm. or I'll call other composers, because sometimes I think, I'm, I'm like, I think this is a John Williams melody, I better check. <laughs> <laughs> right, and you... And I'll say, yeah, no, 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 and then some fan is like, that's a John Williams look, I'm like, yes. uh, <laughs> You've done that too, right? I mean, he's called All me, and he goes, is this yeah. something? I, I'm like, no. Nah, I think this is a, an original idea. But it's finding those those earworms, as it yeah, were, and yeah. then kind of building the complexity off it or going in a different yeah. direction. Or like you said, maybe it's it's that melody, but I'm just going to play it on a different guitar or a different yeah. instrument. Yeah, yeah, and, and you know, just... Um, yeah, it's all kind of a... It's all a jam. It's, you know, it's... A, it's, it's Oscar Peterson, it's Charlie Parker. You know, I mean, it's just, blah, 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 oh, that was cool, you know, kind of just, and maybe not that fast. How do you that. know when you've, how do you know when you nailed it? Is it, is it the feeling that it evokes? Is it the emotion? I mean, at the it, end of the day, that's what it's about? Yeah, there is, there's just a thing. There's just. And sometimes it's a deadline. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, you've nailed it when it's in the mail, you know, when it's on, or in the internet, I'm dating myself. Yeah. Once you've shipped it. Yeah. I got it. You've got it. Fantastic. Well, Kevin, uh, thanks so much. Uh, iconic work on The Peacemaker. Thank you. The, the anti-hero for, for 2022. Right on. And uh, I think the emotion that your score evokes was pitch perfect for the character uh, and the story that James Gunn wanted to yeah, tell. Yeah, yeah. So thanks Th so much. Thank you. I appreciate it. Nice to meet you. You can find the Comic Source podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, or whichever podcasting app you prefer. Please tell all your friends about us, subscribe, and rate us. The ratings really help with our visibility and our ability to reach new listeners, especially five-star reviews on Apple. Also be sure to visit us at lrmonline.com to join the conversation, access the show notes, and discover all our other great pop culture content. If you want to email us, the email address is thecomicsourceblog at gmail.com, or you can follow us on Twitter, twitter.com forward slash thecomicsource. Do a search for The Comic Source on Facebook and Instagram to follow us on those social platforms. All three spots are great places to find out when we release new episodes as well as follow all our convention coverage. So once again, we want to thank everyone for listening, and we'll talk to you next time.